Before we begin, there is an event we would like thee to know about. The fact that thee is listening to a podcast on Conservative Friends suggests that thee might be interested in the Conservative Friends Gathering. Every other year, Friends assemble for a weekend of worship and fellowship. This year, it is scheduled for June 11th, 12th, and 13th. Unfortunately, the usual accommodations at Only Friends School will not be available. However, this time, the gathering will be a hybrid of Zoom and friends physically present in the meeting house. We have found Sonnet Quaker worship surprisingly effective over Zoom. So, if thee is not one of those fortunate enough to be located close to Stillwater, we would encourage thee to join us online. Email contacts for an agenda, including Zoom connection information, can be found in this episode's description. Christ near to all, the light in all, the seed sown in the hearts of all. Okay, this is session number five of our series on fundamental beliefs of conservative friends, what we are conserving. If people have questions to ask as we go along, please ask them. Just a kind of a brief uh, review. First session, we talked about the fear of the Lord and what that word fear actually means in older English, as well as in the Greek translation of the Hebrew, yira, in Greek, phobos. And that is not just fear, but the sense of awe, this total awe of God in terms of the power that we refer to as being God. That is the basic relationship that needs to be learned, actually, and it's the beginning of all knowledge, as it says in the Bible. And in the second session, we also talked a lot about the necessary framework that basically was in all early friends and traditional friends of looking at the world as having two sides, two aspects, inward and outward, were the terms used and are still used to referring to this interior and exterior sides of reality, not just physical reality, but spiritual reality. And that so often friends were focusing in on the inward reality rather than on the materialistic, the, the physical, the surface level of things that we see out there in our everyday world and universe. And that's very important to try to develop that kind of sense of looking at everything, at reality, at truth. In the third session, I spoke a bit about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Lord, the kingdom of Christ, uh, and how that is the goal of our lives, to enter into that kingdom. And that kingdom is also known as eternal life and life, especially in the gospel according to John where those terms are quite frequent, but they do occur in the other Gospels as well. And that this word kingdom is not quite an accurate translation for the Greek. More often, the Greek word basileia for kingdom uh, refers to a state, to the royal kingship of something, to this domain, dominion. See, more often in ancient Greek, it did not refer to an actual locality. And yet so often, unfortunately, people think of that as, as a place today 
where it's much more like I had been saying that the English word state kind of covers both of those aspects in the Greek, that you have states of Europe, the various states in Africa, as well as a state of mind, a state of being, a state of consciousness. And it's important to keep that in mind because that will help, I think, understand what is really being said there. Too often I've heard people talk about building the kingdom of God. No, that's impossible. The kingdom of God is God's realm. It's his state. We don't build it. But actually, I was referring to the kingdom of God because that is one primary instance of what we're talking about, something inward, that the kingdom of God is within you. And I think I mentioned in Luke 17, 20, 21, too often you have modern translations that do not translate it accurately as within or inside, which is what the word really meant. People don't understand that, how that can be within, and again, within in an inward sense, of course, and that's a very important thing. They'll translate it as among or in your grasp and various other things that miss the, the whole point of this kingdom of God is something that we want to enter into the state and now while we are alive and forever upon our deaths, physical deaths. And last week, I talked about repenting and repentance and the true meaning of that word when it's given as a command by Jesus and the apostles and disciples, where we're talking not about just feeling sorry for something, but a transformation, a, a major primary transformation of one's mind, frame of <coughs> mind, mindset, way of thinking. I'd like to just read something that I didn't get to read last week that will point this out. This is a short paragraph from the preface to George Fox's journal written by William Penn. This is the 1694 original edition. And Penn is giving a testimony about early friends. He says, they were changed men themselves before they went about to change others. Their hearts were rent as well as their garments and they knew the power and work of God upon them. And as they freely received what they had to say from the Lord, so they freely administered it to others. The bent and stress of their ministry was conversion to God, regeneration and holiness, not schemes of doctrines and verbal creeds or new forms of worship, but a leaving off in religion the superfluous, in reducing the ceremonious and formal part, in pressing earnestly the substantial, the necessary, and profitable part, as all, upon a serious reflection, must and do acknowledge. Ben says they were changed men themselves before they went about to change others. That change is that repentance, that metanoia, that, that whole change in their way of thinking, the way of looking at themselves, at their neighbors, and at God in the world. And he further says their hearts were rent. Their consciences were rent, were torn asunder. They really had a major shift, a paradigm shift in thinking. And that's what this true repentance is. Not just feeling sorry, feeling remorse, you know, regret for having done things that they realize are, were not right but a real change. And as they freely received what they had to say from the Lord, so they freely administered it to others. 
what was freely given to them, they freely gave to others. This was the true gospel ministry. And the bent and stress of the ministry was conversion to God, regeneration and holiness. Again, conversion means a turning to something, turning to God, regeneration. We'll probably talk about in a future session. That is the second birth, being born again. It's a favorite Quaker word, being regenerated and holiness. Holiness is the focus on something beyond the physical, the material world. Really a different kind of perspective. Not schemes of doctrines and verbal creeds or new forms of worship. So often in so many Christian denominations, you're always seeing people fighting over this or that wording. But rather a leaving off in religion the superfluous and reducing the ceremonious and formal part. Impressing earnestly the substantial, the necessary, and profitable part. And that's the whole focus of friends initially and those who have been faithful since those first friends. Pressing earnestly for what is the substantial, the necessary, and profitable part. And what we're talking about there is this change in their way of thinking and in, in their conduct, their, their, that whole metanoia. That's what's substantial. That's what's necessary. Why repent? As I was saying a moment ago, the whole focus of repentance is to be ready to be in such a state of purity, of holiness, as to be able to enter into this kingdom of God, this state of God, in order to enter and to inherit internal life. Or you can also translate that word inherit in the original Greek as just to obtain, to obtain eternal life. And that is something not necessarily just after death, but even before. As it says in the New Testament, there is no entrance into the kingdom of God without repentance. And how do we repent? How do we get into this state and stay there? And that is taking up an inward way, taking up the inward cross of Christ, which is what we'll be talking about tonight, this inward cross of Christ. Any questions so far? Comments? Okay, what is the problem? The problem is our ego. Ego is a modern word in English. It basically comes from Greek and Latin. The word in Greek is ego, in Latin ego, and it means I, I, me, and traditionally in the history of Christianity, the term that was has been used is the word self, and this is the word you'll so often see in writings of friends. I'm thinking right now of the writings of William Schuen, who in his meditations and experiences, he says the self must be of no repute. The self must be of no repute, or the self must not have any reputation. And I think what he's saying there is that the ego cannot be understood to be why something is happening in you, that it's not you doing something. It's this ego, and this is a sense of ego that we'll, we'll talk more about this evening. So the word you'll find is the word self. Henry? Yes. I'm reminded of the acronym for ego, which E-G-O, which was easing God out. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's good. That's good. Where did this self, this ego come from? Well, let's go back to the beginning. We'll go to Genesis, 
chapter three. Okay, I'm going to read this. Probably will read most of it. Uh, let's see. And this is where about the sin that Adam and Eve committed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me and I ate. And then he goes on cursing, the Lord God curses the serpent. And he also says what will happen to the woman and to the man at the very end. He says, you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, see, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. What we have here is this sacred story of the first sin, a sin of pride pride and disobedience. And this pride is hubris. It's egotistical arrogance. This serpent, this talking snake, said to Eve and Adam, if you eat from this tree, you'll be like gods. That is a pretty powerful incentive. But God had told them, you can't do this. You can't eat from this one particular tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because they did that, they were barred from the garden in which the tree of life was also there. The tree of life, what we would say in the New Testament, eternal life, the kingdom of God, they were barred from it. It was this disobedience and the sin of egotistical pride, egotistical arrogance that was causing this. Now, the word Adam, as I've mentioned perhaps here in the original 
Hebrew means man or mankind, both. Still means this, still has that meaning in modern Hebrew. And so we're talking here of a sin. Now, friends have never believed in an original sin as it was has been explained over the centuries since the fourth, fifth century as to being the cause why everyone has lost God's favor, but that what has happened in actuality, as Fox and others would say, is that at some point in every child's life, they sin. Doesn't have to be that way, but that's what's happened. And we lose that connection with God, with that tree of life, with that eternal kingdom. I've mentioned a book here. Let me just pull it over out over here. <clears throat> this is A Guide to Two Peace in the 1815 edition. It's compiled by William Backhouse and James Jansen, published a few years ago. And it's been very popular over the decades, well, for the last 200 years, uh, among conservative friends. And there are specific places there where it talks about the ego, the self, of course, and stuff that I'm talking about this evening. So this sin of pride is a sin of hubris, of egotistical arrogance. They want to be like God, but they're not going to do it God's way. They're just going to do it their own way, be like God's. This pride, historically in the history of Christianity, is considered the, the greatest of these, what are called the seven deadly sins. There are different names given to them, but things like pride, anger, greed, sloth, envy, lust, gluttony. This pride, this hubris is the top of them, and it's the source of all the others. That has been the understanding historically, that all of the other seven deadly sins come from this, this cardinal sin of pride. Not pride in the sense of feeling proud about having kids who do well in school or whatever, but this is this hubris, this arrogance, this, this uh, part of us that wants to be in control, that wants to have power. This is something that I, I will probably talk a bit more in another session when we look at some other things as well. As I mentioned last week, basically what happened there after um, this sin is that, that we are a, a species, a race of egomaniacs. You know, we want to be like gods. We love to be in power. We want to be in, in control of our world. We want to, to have that sense of everything going our way. That's not what Jesus wanted. That's not how Jesus acted. And that's not what Jesus taught. He taught humility, humbleness, humble, be humble, as he was humble. Oh, I could even say something about this word humble. The root of this word comes from a Latin word, humus, which means earth, ground, land, humble, humbleness, humility. We should put our feet on the ground, get off of our high horses, uh, get off of our, the pedestals we put ourselves on, get down there where we need to be, where we really are. There's a word that early friends often talked about, and that was being lowly, lowliness. You'll see it often in early friends' writings. So that's the sense of humbleness, humility, is this lowliness. Actually, I think I will read something that I... I'll talk more about in the future. Let me get to a passage here in second chapter of Philippians. This is where in chapter 2 and verse 5, in the original, it says, uh, <clears throat> actually, there's an imperative form there saying, think that which Jesus 
with Christ Jesus thought. In verse 7 and 8 it says, He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself, he became obedient. This is just the opposite of what you saw Adam and Eve doing. They weren't being humble. They weren't being obedient. Jesus is the second Adam, the spiritual Adam. But because of that, God highly exalted Jesus and gave him a name of Lord, the name that was reserved for God the Father. Any questions? Well, I have a comment. I, I have no argument with 90% of what you say, but I also think that a two-year-old has to say no. A two-year-old has to individuate and separate, or there's no individuality and there's no um, free will, I guess you could say. Now, the rest of our lives, once we become adults and understand a few things, is to come back to being like little children, but we can't stay there our whole lives. Jesus said we need to become like little children. Actually, my first job was on an infant stimulation team <laughs> uh, as a speech pathologist. So I, and I've worked with preschool and kindergarten kids for many, many years. So I'm, I'm very aware of what you're referring to. I'm trying to remember what uh, William Schuen says in another one of his meditations about how the self of Jesus, we do need to differentiate. And in some sense, perhaps this differentiation, this sin of Adam and Eve might just have to happen. It's interesting to say that this was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You know, before that, Adam and Eve were like other animals. They didn't have that human sense of what's good and what's evil what's right and what's wrong. And it's that development uh, into that mode that we think of as human consciousness is there. I don't know if there are Catholics here, but I remember in the Catholic service on, what is it, Good for, uh, not Good Friday, the eve before Easter, there was a passage in that particular service where they say, oh, happy day, the day that Adam and Eve sinned. I'm not getting the words right, but what they're referring to is that the outcome, the final outcome of it was that there was something even greater so that like what Fox would refer to that, that we get restored back into the image of God that was there in the Garden of Eden, but even beyond what Adam and Eve were and something greater, something closer to God, entering into this kingdom of God, uh, into into eternal life. The scriptures do say that we were made a little higher than, lower than the angels, but higher than the animals. And also that they would not have had to die a physical death if they had been obedient to God. Yes, death that happened was that death of that intimate connection with God. That's what's being exp expressed there in that sacred story. God walked with them, not physically, of course. I mean, just like you don't have talking serpents anywhere today. Of course, what was this poor serpent um, or all snakes forced to do? They were forced to crawl on the ground rather than being like dragons flying in the air around the tree. Well, of course, you know, these stories are 3,000 years old, but there is some real truth here and we need to pull it out 
and understand it. And I've been very appreciative of how early and traditional friends have understood some of these stories because they were so self-effacing. As people have said, friends could never lose face because they had no face to lose. They were so self-effacing, so ego-erasing. And that's that kind of purity that is the whole focus of friends. Repentance. They went about in twos with Bibles in their hands, telling people to repent in the true sense of repentance and that command to transform your whole mind, your whole way of thinking. In doing that, your conduct, your behavior will fall in place as, as you, with God's help, achieve this new conscious reality of who you are in respect to God and who God is as truth, as justice, as love, as, as a spirit, of, as all those spirits, those living spirits of truth and love and justice. Anyway, I'm getting off of what I wanted to say. So I, I don't know if I answered a bit of what you were saying, Marilyn. Okay. Where did I leave off? Okay. Self-ego. I, I, I pulled out some words that kind of says something about self in a negative sense. Self-indulgence. Self-centered selfishness, self-importance, self-serving, self-deception, self-absorbed. What would be the other side of that, the positive? Self-control, self-denial, self-discipline, self-sacrifice. As you recall, Paul says, uh, be living sacrifices. Not dead sacrifices to God, but living sacrifices. And of course, self-effacing. And when we're talking about ego, we're talking about this egotism, an exaggerated sense of one's self-importance, you know, conceit, being egocentric, egomania. As I was saying, we are a species, a race of egomaniacs. I say that humorously, but there's also a truth in it. And we go on ego trips. And what's an ego trip? It's a force of behavior that gratifies our egos. So we're egotists. And this word conceit, we don't, I don't use it often, but conceit, conceitedness is this, this high opinion of ourselves. That's not what God wants. We should be clear about being humble, lowly, understanding our place in, in society. Talking about this conceit, we're talking about vanity, being vain and excessively proud of our accomplishments. God gave us those brain cells. God gave us those opportunities by where he places us in life and by the people he brings to us to associate with us. Nothing can happen without God's knowledge. So you've got this narcissism versus this deep humility, the humility you see in Jesus as a model, someone that we are to imitate. Pride as arrogance, pride as showing excessive self-esteem. I can think of people who have this extreme arrogance, this extreme narcissism, and also at the same time, low self-esteem. And you probably know people like that. And they can, they can be very difficult people to work with, especially if they're bosses. <laughs> so you can have a lowest self-esteem and still be very, very arrogant, very full of pride and just obnoxious. I remember once when I was on a train in England going somewhere to give a talk. I was giving a series of talks at Quaker meetings there. I went into the food car and bought some food and they put it in a bag and the bag said, indulge yourself. 
Well, we're not here to indulge ourselves. Many people may think that, but no. The problem as Americans is that we are just taught to be so aggressive in the world, especially in the business world. And yet that's so counter to what Jesus is telling us to be as to how we can obtain eternal life. We need to be like these innocent children. Okay, how do we enter into the kingdom of God? Well, I'm going to read a passage here from Matthew 10:38. This is just a short section I'll read here. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And then I'd like to go to Matthew 16:24. Then Jesus told the disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? I mean, I'll read two more lines here. For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, and I want to read a similar passage in Mark. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. First thing I'd like to do is to retranslate that word deny. Jesus is saying, if you want to become a follower of mine, you must deny yourself. Well, there's that word self. In the Greek, it's a reflexive pronoun, how to. But the word deny has changed its meaning in modern English from what it was in the King James Version. It meant to renounce, to reject. You must renounce yourself. That's the whole thing we've been talking about, this ego, this self. Not deny yourself, oh, I'm not going to eat some chocolate today, you know, or whatever. This is, this is really renouncing this egotistical self. You want to become my father, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is taking up that inward cross. Now, what was the cross? The cross in that first century was the worst, the hardest form of execution. And taking up a cross meant you were about to execute somebody or something. And that's what we're going to talk about, is killing, exe executing, mortifying things that 
separate us from being closer to God. So if you want to become his follower, you need to reject and renounce that egotistical self, that ego. Take up this inward cross, this form of execution, and then follow me. That passage I just read from Mark and Matthew also occurs in Luke. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Jesus was saying that truly some of these people he was talking to entered into this kingdom of God, entered, had this experience of entering into obtaining eternal life before they die, before they had their physical death. And this is the same understanding that early friends had, that this is something to strive for. This is, there's no reason to wait for something like this after death. This is to be with God and to have this greatest of all happinesses. In the first proposition of Robert Barclay's apology, his defense of the truly Christian theology, he says that is the greatest happiness, quoting from the gospel according to John, is to know God, to experience God and his son, Jesus Christ. That is entering into eternal life. That is entering into God, God's kingdom, into his state. So, um, Henry, are we talking about putting to death the old, the old man and renewing ourselves with the new? Yes, absolutely. Okay, we'll get to that right now. Um, again, a little surprised at how long it takes to talk about these things. <laughs> Okay, so what are we executing? What are we killing? What are we putting to death? What are we mortifying? Mortify means make dead. We're talking about sin and the causes of sin. So often these are things that we are addicted to, that we habitually, or compulsively, impulsively think or act, say. So we're killing all those impulses, all those negative emotions such as anger and hate and you, you name it, that get in the way of us entering into this, this kingdom. Remember, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not a physical kingdom. He said that to Pilate. Paul says, kingdom is neither physical food or drink, but these spiritual states of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So often we're talking about addictions, Addictions to alcohol, sex, smoking, drugs. As, again, addictions to all these negative emotions that just pop up all the time. We become slaves to them. You know, they become idols. We're devoted to them. Not that we even consciously may know that, but that there's something that needs to be killed, executed, mortified. And of course, the greatest addiction is to our ego, to ourselves. This is part of the process of regeneration, of being born again. Jesus is the second Adam, the second exemplar of mankind, of Adam in Hebrew. Henry? Yes. When uh, you talk about the denying the self through uh, ridding oneself of addictions and, and wrongdoing, that sort of functions as the law did the hebrews law it put restrictions on those movements that would draw one away from god but i think that there's a verse in john 6 verse 44 and which gives a different kind of a dynamic 
to entering the kingdom. One that I think is probably more significant than those restrictions that the law or self-discipline puts on us. And John 6.44 says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Mm -hmm. And I will raise him up at the last day. So it puts the work is done by God and we're responding to it rather than it being simply in ourselves doing these acts of self-denial. What you're bringing up is something I will be talking more about in terms of regeneration in the future. Of ourselves, it's just impossible to overcome some of these things. And that's very, I know just the things I've been struggling all my life to uh, overcome, tendencies and things I, you know, just what, however they develop. That's an important point in, in terms of regeneration, that you cannot do it without God. It is God helping you, but you need to be receptive and open to that process. I'm thinking of the 12-step programs. They can really be of great help to people, and they do help people who fully understand that process in a 12-step program, Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever, as being a truly spiritual trip, a journey that they are really allowing God, how do they say, let go, let God, that you have to let go of your ego, even your ego. Uh, what's the expression used in um, the King James Version? Voluntary humility. You know that expression? Again, voluntary is the wrong word if you take the modern translation. I would translate it as something like willful humility. It's not humility. It's, it's your will you know, your will being done rather than God's will being done. And that's just not humility. I'm going to be humble whether you like it or not. No, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. So I agree, but that's if we talk more about baptism and uh, regeneration and being born again, that's absolutely right. That's uh, John 6, 44, you said? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I've said more or less what I want to say. Any further questions, comments, discussion? Henry? Yeah. I'd like to just push on Pat Dahlman's point just a little bit. In talking about the fundamental transformation, you got to change your mind, which, of course, is not, not a mistake. I don't, but what you have, to, what has to be changed is the perspective of one's experience and the perspective of one's experience leads to a new mind. You know, over and over again, Fox talks about this sort of thing. That change comes when the light of spirit you know, finally forces you to shift. You know, we say, oh gosh, I'm wicked. And then you can look at the world from a perspective in which you are just something, yourself is just something else in the world. And that's, that's how your thinking changes. I mean, that's at least that's, that's the way I understand it. And that's that initial divine act. Yes, that's that first part of repentance as friends have understood it. The convict, conviction, like being convicted by God, that you, you must acknowledge that you are, are wrong. You're being convicted as guilty. By God, that's the convincement. And then you, that leads to this turning to God with his help. 
hopefully you don't stay there, but that you realize I've got to get help from somewhere else, from above. I think it's that first step is so hard for so many people to say that they're wrong and that they've been wrong. Again, thinking of all these 12-step programs, uh, people addicted to drugs, to, to alcohol, to sex, whatever. I think in their groups, if I'm not mistaken, in an alcoholic and a gay group, don't they first say, hello, uh, my name is such and such, I am uh, an alcoholic. And it's just coming out and saying something, I'm a drug addict or something. It's in front of others. That's hard to do. Early Christians in the very first you know, centuries, the, you had these public confessions. I mean, if you wanted to become a Christian, you just laid out in front of all these people that you, you had to trust that uh, of what your sins were like and who you were. I think that's a stumbling block for so many people. Unfortunately, it, it shouldn't be, but from people I know, family actually, that they can't get, they can't get over that first step somehow. The transformation of this mind, of this, this whole way of thinking, may not happen in one second, but you know, maybe it's, you're already in preparation for this change, and then at some point something clicks, the light within turns on, that light of Christ somehow shows you all the dark parts of yourself. This is the first function of the light of Christ, the first, I should say, the first appearance of Christ in you is to show you what is wrong, even though you may not want to know. And if you reject that spirit, you're not going to get anywhere until you accept it at some point. I've talked about our egos, but we can also talk about uh, our society having an, uh, an ego and our countries having an ego. I can recall the Catholic priest once telling me something, this was 35 years ago, who was a, a canon lawyer in Rome, uh, American, saying some of the biggest egos he ever met were, were in Rome, in the Catholic Church there. And I understand that, but this is true of a lot of churches here, just small churches, whatever. As I mentioned last uh, week when I was reading the 15th proposition of Barclay, a true religion should be focusing on these kinds of things, you know, kingdom of God, repentance, communion with God. And they spend so much time talking about other things and having their, their music and their sermons on stuff that's sometimes important, but other times just not the, the real true focus, as I just read from William Penn. This is, I think, at the very basis of solid, true, conservative, early Quaker beliefs. You're not going to find a book on inward and outward perspectives or much on the fear of God, but these are the things that really were there in their heads, getting them to reject their puffed up egos and bring them back down to the ground and, and have a proper relationship with God as it was meant to be. Any uh, other questions, comments? What? I was just going to say, following on, on what you were just saying, that we need to remember that the fundamental tenet of liberal modernity, the last 400 years, is the exact opposite of Christ's basic principle. You know, John Locke said, and I think it's the evilest statement ever made, John Locke says, every person has a property in himself. And it, well, we'd have to say him or herself, I guess. Now. But a property, that means you, 
you own yourself. And it's no wonder that we have all the other troubles and particularly comprehending what Fox is talking about. You'd have to disestablish the entire moral culture of the Western world to get back to the idea that the self is an obstacle, not the ultimate meaning of what it is to be. Yes, this individualization and how, well, this is the world. I mean, we could we could probably spend a whole uh, session talking about world as understood in the New Testament and in early Christian writings and in, conser- in the conservative and early friends' writings. The Quakers were a, how can I put it, a, uh, a counterculture kind of movement. They were opposed to all cultures, all societies that were worldly, materialistically focused, all the idols that they worshipped are worldly idols in terms of power, greed, all, all these sins we're talking about, and all the fears that go along with that, too. Yeah, we could probably talk a lot about the world, <laughs> as friends have understood it. So I think we're about finished. Any other comments, questions? Well, one other idea that I think should be included in the discussion is that this individualism or what Wood was saying about the property of, of owning oneself, I think that there is even a more terrible way of functioning, and that is to forfeit that individual self, not to God, but to the mass, to lose one's individuality in a conformity to a group. Those are often seen as the only two alternatives. And what the Quakers and what what Jesus was advocating was neither one of those things. Yeah, I'm thinking in the 20th century world, all the totalitarian movements, communism and you name it, Nazism, fascism, people... They give up their own individuality. And basically what Jesus is saying, he's, he's trying to raise our consciousness to be more God conscious rather than more worldly conscious and, and follow all these false idols. One idol, I think very powerful idol of God in our society is money as the golden calf that we worship. It's up there. We don't like to name it as such, but it is one of the most powerful gods that people bow down and worship to every day. God knows that we need clothing and need a place to live. And the the emphasis is unfortunate that we have to deal with that kind of consumerism and all that stuff day in, day out. Anyway, it's getting late. So I think we need to stop now. Okay. So we'll meet again next week. I haven't decided what to talk about next week, although I was thinking maybe for a different break, maybe, maybe not uh, talk about the Lord's Prayer and translate that into some modern sense. I I don't know yet, but we'll do that at some point or other anyway. Okay, so thank you, friends and visitors. Thanks, Henry, and everyone. Thank you, Henry. Thank you. Bye-bye. Christ near to all, the light in all, the seed sown in the hearts of all. This podcast 
on the fundamentals of Conservative Friends' understandings has been a production of Ohio Yearning Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Chip Thomas. The words to our music are from Robert Barclay, quoted from his work, The Apology for the True Christian Divinity. The words were put to music and sung by Paulette Meyer. Paulette's CDs are available at paulettemeyer.com.